This podcast is supported by VEPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by Peter Jewell, and this is the Planning Exchange Podcast. Good afternoon, and welcome to PX66. I'm Jess Noonan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Peter Jewell. Hello, Jess. Today we're speaking with the wonderful Paul Ship, a town planner and urban economist with Urban Enterprise here in Melbourne. I've known Paul for a number of years through our work together on the Planning Institute Committee, organising conferences, and more recently through COVID, we've been using the very same walking tracks. Paul has over 15 years experience consulting to government and private clients, primarily in Melbourne and regional Victoria. As a director of consultancy Urban Enterprise, Paul leads a wide range of strategic planning and urban economic projects and has developed a specialisation in development contributions and land supply and demand areas. He's also contributed and managed, managed numerous studies across the state in these areas. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you very much, Jess and Peter, for having me. Could you tell us a little bit more about Urban Enterprise? Sure. Um, it's a consultancy that's been around for about 30 years now. Um, we're Melbourne-based, but we work across Victoria and Australia. Um, we specialise in planning, economics and tourism. Uh, we work for a whole range of different clients, so local government, state government, developers, other organisations, um, mainly on, on economic and tourism issues, but um, generally in relation to, to planning issues. And Paul, what did you study to be, to get where you are? Uh, I studied urban planning at Melbourne Uni. Um, that was my first degree. And then I worked as a planner um, for a few years and then went back and did a Master of Commerce um, mm. again in Melbourne. So bolted on the economics um, to the planning base. And, and, and Paul, the term urban economics, it sounds like a lot of jargon. Can you explain to our listeners what is it and why is it more important now than ever? It is. There's a lot of jargon in urban economics itself, um, as there is in planning, but uh, urban economics is basically um, a field of study which applies the principles of economics to urban issues and to urban areas. So um, we look into how urban areas function and how they're developed and particularly demand and supply issues. So demand and supply for, for land and um, housing, retail floor space and the like. Uh, but we also look at demographics and, and property market characteristics, um, infrastructure funding, um, a whole different range of economic considerations that wrap around planning and urban areas. Um, and I think, well, your question about why is it important now more than ever, um, I think there's some pretty major economic and demographic shifts and disruptions that are happening at the moment across the world economy and certainly um, Australia is not immune to that and actually understanding what some of those opportunities and challenges mean for individual towns and areas um, is becoming pretty critical. Um, that's not even mentioning COVID but now in, in the most recent challenge. Um, yeah, very very volatile economic conditions exist um, that need to be understood and, and responded to locally. And Paul, do you think urban economics should inform planning policy to a greater extent? I mean, uh, how much does it at the moment and where do you see it in, say, 10 years' time? Um, well, I've noticed a, a, a pretty big shift over the last few years. Um, I, perhaps earlier on in my career, I, I think it was often... Um, urban economics was often considered as just one of the elements of planning and one of the, um, I suppose, the inputs to a plan, but there was, it was often given equal weighting to other things. Um, but, but I've seen it become a lot more front and centre in terms of um, directly informing planning policy in the last couple of years. Um, and I think that's, that's pretty important, that, that the strategic plans, that um, whether they're local or, or national um, have a very strong economic basis so i can i can see it trending to becoming a bit more front and center but um, it'll be interesting to see how it goes over the next few years um, we've just seen the release of the melbourne commercial and industrial land use plan which um, i think for the first time puts a pretty strong policy marker down in in melbourne itself um, on the importance of, of planning for, for business land so i think there, there are signs that it's becoming um, more front and centre for, for decision makers and, and probably better understood for politicians as well. 
And Paul, in town planning land, urban, urban economics is often used to help support rezoning of land um, and development of particular land uses. How does planning and economics interact when considering the balance of population growth, uh, settlement policy, environmental values and tourism objectives? Um, well, it certainly interacts. Um, there's a lot of tension really between um, the urban economics inputs and analyses um, that then inform planning decisions. Um, I'll probably give a couple of examples, I suppose, here. Um, I've been working on a, a rural residential study um, in northern Victoria, so in, in a regional context, and um, the locations where everyone wants to build their nice house um, in, a, in a rural area near near jobs and, and near services in that area um, just happen to be the, the most bushfire prone locations. So on the, on the one side, you've got an urban economic report that says um, values will be maximised and demand is greatest in a particular location. But on the other side, you've got the planning policy directing um, minimal or no growth to locate there. So that's, that's one example where um, the market need and the market interest is, is often directly at conflict with planning policy objectives. Um, and that's that's pretty common in in a range of different locations, and that's that's pretty natural and pretty well understood, I'm sure, by everyone. But um, there's often um, so much tension involved um, in in how planning responds to and either blocks or or is able to facilitate some sort of development that there is a market need for, um, but in a in a way that creates net benefit for for a broader community. So yeah, the, the tension is is very real through most of the projects that, that we provide urban economic advice on. We love tension on planning exchange. <laughs> uh, there's always tension between Jess and Pete loves so. tension. I don't <laughs> like tension. <laughs> right. But you, you mentioned net community benefit. Now, that's a very, very subjective um, outcome and description. Mm. But also, also with urban economics, one thing different to, say, the production of cars or something like that or widgets Demand and supply in a planning sense is very artificially informed. So the, the demand and supply equation is, is quite different. Any, any comments on that? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much debate still about um, how planning uh, strategies and, and policies should balance uh, demand and supply and whether the planning policy should really be deliberately restricting supply in certain areas and um, and trying to direct demand. Um, I suppose I've had a lot of conversations with with community members and elected representatives over the years um, in my field, which um, in many cases I find myself arguing with um, with people who suggest that um, we, we should be able to just shut the door and demand will go elsewhere. Um, and, and I find myself a bit frustrated with some of those um, those conversations because really what we're doing is looking at what people are looking for in terms of their housing needs or um, what businesses are looking for in terms of where they want to locate um, and demand will accumulate no matter what um, supply is available um, if if people want to live in a certain area then values will go up when there's uh, whether there's more supply made available or not so um, yeah I think there's there's a real tension there between um, what planning seeks to direct and and what the market's looking for in terms of um, in terms of a, a product that they're willing to to buy and, and get into. So um, I think there's probably a bit more opportunity for um, yeah some some of the policies to more clearly reflect the fact that there is growth taking place across most parts of well most metropolitan and and even a lot of peri-urban parts of Australia. Um, and that there does really need to be a, a conscious effort to provide more opportunities for growth, um, even in areas where there is good planning policy reasons to limit growth, but um, being able to provide opportunities for development where people are interested in being, um, I think can be even extended a little bit further. 
Now, Paul, in many tourism spots, a large portion of housing is holiday housing and not used on a permanent basis. This can create ghost towns where the local population, in particular key workers and low-income earners, are not able to live locally due to limited rental stock or inflated rental holiday prices. How do we fix this? Yeah, so we, um, we do a lot of work in tourism regions um, and for obvious reasons, they're often the most attractive places to, to live as well, um, especially along the coast um, in Victoria where we've done a lot of our work. Um, we've done some research lately that um, shows that about 50%, taking the surf coast example, um, south coast of Victoria, um, about 50% of all visitors to that region um, actually stay in private dwellings. So you've got a real conflict between housing stock um, that I suppose at its core is designed for people to live in, um, but the housing stock actually um, being almost primarily used for visitation and, and tourism purposes. So to use the word tension, there's uh, it's definitely a bit of tension there in terms of the housing market and it's clearly um, pushing prices way up um, in that part of the world and other tourism areas. Um, how do we fix it? Um, I think there's, there's very... Well, there could be a lot more policy support really for, for things like tourism accommodation establishments. Um, tourism's obviously one of Australia's major export industries and accommodation um, is chronically undersupplied in a lot of our tourism areas. Um, perhaps over the next 12 months there won't be as much need um, with a lack of international visitation, but certainly as a long-term objective, I think tourism um, accommodation um, is, is a really important opportunity uh, and need for um, economic development as well as making sure that the housing stock is actually available to um, residents and especially key workers and, and low-income earners um, that need to work in places like um, holiday destinations and serve the meals and, and pull the beers. Paul, the should, you know, the, you mentioned the lack of t tourist accommodation. Should that inform planning decisions to a greater extent and to actually encourage, you know, the construction of bigger tourist facilities? Because I know I know a number have been defeated in, in small coastal mm. towns and it seems to be quite perverse. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I just said, accommodation is, has so many benefits economically. Um, naturally, it needs to be balanced um, between, uh, I suppose, the, the role of an area and the, its capacity and its, its environmental qualities um, and the character of a place. There's always a balance to be had. Um, and I suppose it goes to my earlier point about having, a, having an objective or a planning objective, a policy objective to facilitate growth and to optimise it rather than to just put up the shutters and say that... Um, we don't want any more development here. Um, there's certainly economic opportunity to be had by encouraging more accommodation. It doesn't necessarily need to be um, a massive resort-style Gold Coast um, accommodation everywhere. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I find in my in my work that a lot of good economic work has been done across um, regions and and towns um, that doesn't necessarily end up getting much planning policy support. So. Yes, I think, to directly answer your question, yes, I think more could be done to, to facilitate the right types of, of tourism accommodation. And probably a follow-on to that one, Paul, is how do we plan or, or, I guess, strategically plan for those, particularly those coastal areas, I'm thinking, you know, areas like uh, the Great Ocean Road where they're overrun with tourists for, you know, huge, huge parts of the year. How do we plan mm. for populations when they... Uh, fluctuate so much between tourism season and um, the off-peak seasons? Mm. Well, it, it's very difficult to, um, to know exactly what population a lot of those areas actually have um, at different times of the year. So that there's, there's such serious fluctuations that go on uh, and those local governments are often um, not reaping all of the rewards of, of that influx of, of visitation. Um, and they're not necessarily able to respond with serious infrastructure investment. Um, yeah, look, it's, it's a good question. I'm not sure, 
I think the first way to respond to it really is to is to really closely understand um, what is happening and, and what are the population fluctuations and, and which areas are experiencing which kinds of growth, um, and yeah, having a bit more of an informed opinion. And we've done a bit of work on population fluctuations for different areas, and, and the holiday home factor is is probably the biggest driver of what is the biggest driver of visitation to a lot of those areas that um, are experiencing challenges and it's often a bit of a hidden data set um, and the more you can understand who's visiting and why and when um, the easier it, it is to respond. The data is incredibly hard to get though isn't it you're right I mean referring to it as a hidden data set it's it's um, it's very difficult I think when ABS data is only released every couple of years um, it's all those those years in between that we really need to understand. Mm. Oh, absolutely. We've done a lot of primary research in that field and, and we often find that our visitation estimates far exceed any, any official visitation estimates or census or what census information can actually offer. Um, so, yeah, I suppose um, not necessarily trusting official estimates is our motto and, and we go and try and dig into what's actually happening on the ground. And, and for example, if you look at the census, you'll find that in the surf coast, I think it's something like, 25% um, of the dwellings are rented, but then when you dig into it and you look at the rental bonds that are active in some of those towns, um, you find that almost all of those um, rented dwellings um, don't actually have a, a bond that, that is attached to it. So it's not, it's not a permanent rental, it's a holiday rental. So there's a whole bunch of issues that need to be unpacked before you can really understand how those, how those areas are affected. Paul, you're a, you're a welcome guest on Planning Exchange because... We don't uh, trust official statistics much, Jester, <laughs> with the, with the ABS. But the, the, you know the ABS and those sort of things, Paul, as, you, as you're sort of alluding to, is really backward rear view mirror looking, and they don't capture the data. I would have thought, with all the marvelous technology we've got now, you know, even phone data can tell you who's you know not who is in the area, but how many people and things like that. And there's lots of you know Google searches, and the data can be gained lots and lots of different ways to give you a very accurate picture of what's going on how, how do you how do you respond to that yeah i completely agree um so most of our studies we would generally try and corroborate information so yep official data sources provide a starting point but we then go a bit deeper um i suppose one example i can think of is um, we were lucky enough to access, I think it was anonymously access and confidentially access um, road toll information for one of our projects. Um, and that it was a project about tourism visitation and we were able to then work out uh, which roads uh, visitors were using to access a tourism region and, and when and, and where they were coming from. And it, and it just opened up. Um, a whole data set that, that we'd never seen before and it, and it gave us some really rich information and, and it was just a matter of, of looking for it and trying to establish a partnership with someone who holds data and use it for, for planning purposes. Um, and Paul, do you think this sort of, uh, you know, the, the road traffic is one thing and uh, the rental information you saw, but in, in a whole other array of planning uh, issues and contested matters, the use of data to get more accurate um, summation of what is actually going on. Can you give some other examples as well? Yeah. Um, oh, there's there's so many so many public data sets now available that were never available before, um, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of them will be very familiar to your listeners. But um, for example, there's a lot more um, of census of land use information available now that that governments and local governments are making public um, about how many restaurant seats there are and um, any any which way of, of sort of analyzing land use um, you can use GIS to have a better understanding of building footprints and heights and all sorts of um, urban design applications um, I mean we use things like Airbnb data um, to um, analyze um, tourism accommodation and, and the issue that I was discussing before about use of private dwellings. Um, there's a there's a huge amount of data out there that was never really public or, or even available until probably about five years ago or so. So 
yeah, there's no shortage of data. I suppose the challenge is making sure that it's it has some integrity and and can be understood and can be interpreted as relevant to a planning issue. How would you say uh, the change in data, or, or perhaps it's the availability of data and the range of it, how has it affected your day-to-day -day work? Um, well, it, it's given us, I suppose it's given us more that we could work with, but it is, it can be difficult to filter um, data now because of, I suppose it's a bit like journalism, there's every man and his dog is, is an expert. Um, and so there's a, there's a whole myriad of data that we could possibly use, but it's, we find that we're needing to very much interrogate the, the quality of the data um, a bit more now. When you're using official data sets, um, you can be confident, a bit more confident in the, in the quality of the data, whether it's um, exactly relevant or, or perfect, that's, that's another matter. But suppose we need to do a bit more interrogation of data sets. Um, and I suppose there's a bit of a tendency at the moment. You can get lazy and and just try and use the huge amount of desktop information that you can access to to analyse a an issue. Um, but absolutely nothing can ever replace the quality and the richness of of information you can gather from talking directly to individuals and businesses. So um, I suppose we're spending a lot of time interrogating data, but then really testing it by talking to the people who. Um, who are on the ground and especially the businesses who know how an area is performing. Thank you to Song Bowden planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Paul, residential areas um, provide far greater opportunity for businesses than is currently being realised. Um, can you talk to that? But and also, I want to talk talk to you about my dislike of high tech high tech business hubs. After that, um, everyone seems to want one, and to me, it's um, anyway maybe the first one: residential areas and business opportunities. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, Melbourne is a is a massive, massive place, and I know I'm being very Melbourne centric. I do a lot of my work in Melbourne. Um, you know, urban areas in Australia in general are, are very, very land extensive. Um, and we have a huge amount of, of property and space and built uh, environments that we can use for, um, I think, more purposes than we currently are. Um, I suppose the challenge that I, I see uh, in a lot of my work is that um, employment areas in established parts of a, of a usually a metropolitan area um, are usually fairly finite and often at their capacity already. Um, so you'll find that um, a lot of land is being taken up in activity centres or around activity centres um, for residential purposes and there's not a, a huge amount of uh, land that's available for businesses, especially small businesses. Um, so yeah, I, I think um, I think our residential areas could perform a greater role in in accommodating very small businesses and, and micro businesses um, if there's the right policy support to to manage that, um, especially in areas that are proximate to public transport. Um, and yeah, the, the impacts can be can be managed. I, I think there's a massive opportunity there. Do you think, Paul, that we need to be reviewing our zoning provisions at a state level um, more regularly to keep up with these ever-changing markets? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think um, I think that's a problem for any planning policy, isn't it? That um, it's, it's it takes so long, and with good reason, mm. that the changes to policy need to be well justified and, and well consulted on. Um, but I think, particularly in terms of planning for businesses, you know, business businesses need and probably the COVID experience has shown this more than ever, that businesses need to be able to adapt very quickly to, to opportunities and capitalise on 
first mover advantages and the like um, so that they can, they can establish and they can pivot into other industries. And I think that there's, there's probably the need to um, have a look at our employment zones again so that there's as much flexibility as possible for, for most businesses to just establish um, and get started without um, too much planning complexity about it. I mean, naturally, there needs to be good um, policy in place and good controls in place to mitigate any any impacts. But it needs to be flexible enough and, and nimble enough perhaps to accommodate all those micro economies that we're starting to see, particularly through COVID, I think. Mm. Oh, exactly. And mm. that, that goes back to my point about residential areas could do some of the some of the lifting, um, definitely broadening out the, the uses that or the business types that could be um, accommodated without a permit. Um, there's a whole range of ways you could do it, but I suppose the, the current zones that I'm familiar with in Victoria are, are very much a commercial zone and an industrial zone and variations. And yes, you can have different types of businesses within each of those zones, but um, the way businesses work, they're, they're far less rigid. Um, you have a a coffee roaster um, who wants to have a, a little coffee shop at the at the front and that's a, a retail element and then there's a, a I suppose a manufacturing element and there's a real blurred line now between a lot of um, businesses and how they wish to operate and they, they can't be very easily categorized into our planning system mm. well and talking talking about high technology hubs uh, everyone seems to be uh, after these things mm maybe it's just a matter of doing the right thing in terms of the zoning structure and then leaving it up to businesses to to, to go for it rather than try and pick winners and, and, and designate certain things that really don't need those spaces. Maybe it's more hype than reality. Mm. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that point, Peter. Um, I, mean, I, I do quite a few projects on industrial uh, land demand and supply assessments and the like, and just general employment planning. And I think the I think the hype that you mentioned is real. That that a lot of um, towns and areas and governments would love to have a high tech hub, um, in whatever form that that might take for them. Um, but not er- not every area has a specialisation or a, a competitive advantage to be able to attract those kind of businesses. So. Um, in my view, any business is good business, especially if it's well suited to the advantages of, of that particular area. And uh, there, are, there are heaps of examples of communities that I suppose are strongly objecting to things like employment um, areas that are proposed or an industrial area that's proposed because uh, the government or, or the community would prefer either no employment land or attractive high-tech jobs um, when really all, all that's needed is local employment opportunities and, and often often small-scale industrial precincts are, are what's needed. And it might not always be pretty, but um, that's the way to uh, from the bottom up to make sure that there are business opportunities and employment opportunities rather than trying to attract a big fish or trying to come up with a, a business park or a high-tech hub that, that may or may not be suited to an area. Paul, I think it was Lennon who said, you know, for decades, nothing changes. And then in a day, decades happen overnight. Um, maybe this COVID disaster is going to get rid of some of the magic thinking that we've had in the past about wishing for this and having high expectations. And just mm. rather than that, because we were in a di- such dire economic conditions, maybe it's just back to basic knitting. What do you think? Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm sort of experiencing that at the moment. That um, things have been so good for so long that um, it, it is easy to get complacent with planning and, and projections and things like that, and and not necessarily worry about uh, making sure that there are jobs for everyone. Um, but uh, yeah, I definitely agree with your with your comments there. Um, as I said before, any job's a good job, um, so long as uh, yeah, you can, at a planning policy level, make sure that um, it's not impacting negatively on, on any other part of the planning system. Um, yeah, it, it's fascinating to watch how, how the COVID impacts are already playing out and how people are responding. 
And just moving on to your favourite topic, Paul, um, infrastructure contributions. We wanted to talk to you about public open space and interested in your views on whether or not there is a shortage in terms of our ability to provide quality neighbourhoods currently. Um, why is it so difficult for infill sites to deliver public open space? Should developers be given the option of land versus cash? And what about the um, upcoming infrastructure contributions? Yeah, it is my um, my favourite topic, I suppose, Jess. Um, uh, not, it's not many people's favourite topic. <laughs> so I'm glad someone's across it. <laughs> yeah, look, it's often um, it's often the the first topic that a planner will run a million miles away from as quickly as they can as soon as they see a DCP or a spreadsheet with all infrastructure costs and contributions in it. Um, yeah, it's a very complex issue. So public open space contributions and development contributions um, are, are so hotly contested and, and rightly so. Um, developers are, are making a, often a financial contribution that needs to be, needs to be fair um, and needs to be um, uh, providing better infrastructure for the, the people that are being accommodated in their developments. But um, I suppose there's... Um, there are issues at the moment in terms of open space. So the open space network, and not just open space, but using that as an example, the open space networks were often established many years ago um, to a great extent. And the density increases that have been occurring in metropolitan areas and established areas have been so significant that um, existing open spaces are under severe pressure in a lot of areas. Um, and it's difficult often uh, to for developments to provide land as part of their um, their, their medium to high density developments because land is so valuable um, and there is a lot of policy direction to encourage that sort of high density development and you don't necessarily want to have half of a development taken up with open space um, for a number of reasons. So being able to use open space contributions to improve existing open spaces is really critical. Um, but I think there's a bit of a, probably a bit of a policy gap or a, at least a lack of direction from, from the Victorian state government in my experience and uh, possibly in other jurisdictions as well where there's not really a consistent approach. So you'll find some developers paying a contribution of say 2% in one part of um, a city and then um, 8% in another part of a city. So there's, there's, a, there's a real inconsistency in terms of how um, how contributions are made and how they're collected across all types of infrastructure. Um, and it, it's a bit of a mess. And um, I think uh, there, there needs to be a lot more thought and a lot more progress made on, on funding. It's often the very last thing that people think about in a plan, um, yet it's so critical to making sure that infrastructure is available to everyone um, and that there's a, an equitable approach across, uh, across areas. Paul, just uh, changing the subject to activity centres, there's a, a big push um, to have high-density residential in those centres. Now, that's causing some issues, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, it's a really tough one, activity centres, because it, there are such great planning principles that, that underpin the activity centre policy that, that is, is a central part of uh, of, of planning policy for, for cities across Australia and, and certainly in, in Melbourne where it's, uh, it's very well entrenched. Um, I, suppose, I suppose the, the, the things that I've observed are that um, the really strong focus of a lot of development on delivering residential in activity centres and the strong policy support for good reason for residential to locate within activity centres um, it's often leading to, a, I suppose, a, a lack of growth in, in floor space for commercial purposes. And, and there's been a number of attempts across Melbourne recently to, um, I suppose, mandate a minimum commercial floor space, for example, in an activity centre or a minimum number of levels. And, and those, those battles have really been hard fought. Um, I, I think policy really could think or, or could be adapted even further so that um, we think carefully about asking activity centres to do all the heavy lifting in terms of residential development, um, looking at some of the, the areas around activity centres. I know 
a lot of uh, areas already do this, but um, making sure that all parts of the city does does its share of heavy lifting in terms of accommodating residential and that within activity centres themselves, um, that space is really available for employment purposes and, and commercial uses, which really are the, the bread and butter of activity centres rather than just a, an apartment zone. Well, with, with that spreading the load of residential, one one thing is that the city could be divided up into sort of hexagonal grids, much like a some sort of war plan, and different areas could be given different attributes. And some of those attributes might be uh, very conducive to residential, even though it's remote from an activity centre. And planning policy could be much more adaptive. Uh, any any merit in that sort of approach? Do you think? Um, here we're going into a very sort of philosophical planning direction. That's the Peter. exchange. Police. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Peter Jewell. Yes, <laughs> Noonan, you are so rude. Come feel, on, this is a t- there's no I in team. Come on, what are you doing? <laughs> I feel like I'm uh, I'm going back to the origins of, of urban planning and the history of it here. Um, no, I think it's a good point. I mean, my comment before about any job's a good job. Um, it's it's not as simple as any house is a good house, um, but in in an environment where you're experiencing a lot of demand for housing and a lot of a lot of price challenges, um, being able to accommodate enough dwellings across growth areas, established areas, activity centres, and sometimes in areas that aren't perfectly aligned with planning with current planning policy to direct growth to activity centres and and public transport, I th- I think that's there's merit to that. You're going to be welcome back, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to disagree with you, but I, I haven't really no, had the chance to please. study the principles of your proposal, Peter. <laughs> Paul, we love tension. And, you know, there's a lot to be said, you know, categorising things as insiders and outsiders. Planning policy can change, even just because something's been in place for 40 years. And you've got to look at how successful that's been, you know, in real terms. Um, and one thing about the activity centre policy that, yeah, okay, we've got lots of new residential towers in some of the activity centres, but the sprawl just keeps going out and out and out and out. And the proportion of people you know, living in that sort of housing is pretty much the same. So uh, I just think you need to, if something's not working, you look at it, you know, and um, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Any thoughts? Mm. No, I, I agree. Um, I mean, I'm often asked to comment on uh, the, what, what, what the appropriate balance should be between growth areas and apartments, for example, or you know, shouldn't, we be, shouldn't we be drawing a line, a permanent growth boundary, let's say, around a, a metropolitan area and, and, and focusing all developments um, on infill and, and apartments. But in reality, the market is looking for, for all sorts of different housing op- options. You know, it's such a diverse property market, usually across a metropolitan area. Um, and we really need to be firing on all cylinders to make sure that there are that diversity is retained um, and that and that different housing types are available to different people um, if you can achieve that for your current policy then great but i i, I think um, i agree with where i think your question's heading is which is that uh, there probably needs to be um, a, a broader target around those established areas um, doing some of the heavy lifting as well as just um, polarising the growth areas and the, and the apartments in activity centres. And Paul, what about the rural populations or rural areas? Um, I know you do a lot of work in this area as well. Um, obviously, these sort of geographic areas are critical to our country's production and supply chains, yet many of them are losing their populations um, or their labour force. How do we fix this? Yeah, it's um, it's a pretty big issue for a lot of councils at the moment um, that I've worked with. Um, rural areas, I, I mean, it's a global, it's really a, um, a global issue that um, population is centralising and um, uh, heading uh, urbanising um, at a fairly rapid rate, and it has been for some time. But I suppose what what some areas of Australia are experiencing is is population decline in areas that have high value resources and have an existing supply chain and an existing um, business base that really is desperate for labour and especially in, in Australia, which 
exports so much um, food and fiber um, that, that really there is a lot of value to be had and, and a lot of economic opportunity if we can encourage or, or find ways to um, uh, stop some of that population loss or, or just attract people to rural areas. Um, I mean, we've found that um, there, are, there are opportunities to directly connect businesses that, that have jobs available to, um, to people looking for work in, in metropolitan areas, for example, um, but also that, that it's very difficult to achieve any meaningful change without, without government policy to really encourage um, people to head to rural areas, either temporarily or for, for an extended period of time. Um, and I think from a, from a planning perspective, we've, we've found that a lot of towns um, that are struggling for population, um, there's a bit of a threshold um, for, for that population level that seems to be sustainable or, or able to, to, to maintain and grow population. And it's around the 6,000 resident mark. Um, it's not to say that if you have less than 6,000 Residents, you're going to lose population. If you have more, you're going to grow. But we've found that that's, that's a bit of a population indicator that um, if population is declining any, any less than that, um, there is a risk of, of losing some of the services and some of the retail um, players that, that might have been established in those towns for a long time. So um, yeah, supporting those rural centres um, is really going to be critical to make sure that those some of those rural areas don't actually collapse in terms of their, their population base. Paul, the, the COVID factor, we talked about planning, uh, we talked about public policy, government policy. What, what are your predictions of the impact on this will have on society? I know it's a huge question. Now, <laughs> now Jess and I don't agree about this, but I think, you know, the government's reaction has been the biggest public policy failure in the history of the country uh, in terms of what it's done to business and everything else. But what do you what do you think it means for the retail sector? What impacts lower immigration going to have on the commercial space and, and other aspects? Big big mm. topics, but you've got two minutes. <laughs> Massive topic. Um, I mean, I think we're all still finding out um, what what impacts might actually um, come to fruition, um, and and every day we're observing something different. Um, well, I think from my perspective, it's really shown a bit of a, um, a forward look at what a current trend might lead to. So, I mean, you've already got the, on, the trend of online retail that's been having a significant effect on, on existing bricks and mortar. Um, I mean, sales have doubled in retail, online retail over the last four years alone. And now you've got everyone logging on to um, get their groceries delivered or, or whatever it might be. Um, so I think COVID's basically been accelerating some of those trends that are already occurring. Um, but I, I suppose I've observed, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, but I've observed um, a bit of a pushback as well. So a lot of people have been pretty sick to death of teleconferencing and um, the, the, the idea that everyone will be working from home because um, you can, I don't think um, stands up in my mind. I think people are pushing back and saying, hey, we, we really um, gain benefit from personal interaction and collaboration um, and, and, and acting and, and spending money locally as well and interacting within their local community. So I, I think although there'll be some trends that, that stick, like the online retail, there'll be some others that, that push back. Um, yeah, that, that, that I suppose lend support to, to traditional ideas around local centres um, and, and physical collaboration in workplaces and, and all of those. So. I, I, I don't think we should be too uh, quick to suggest that the world is going to change fundamentally just because of this, this look that we're getting into the future. And what about the reduced immigration? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's going to be interesting because um, depending on how long borders stay closed, um, I mean, immigration in Australia makes up a, a huge percent of the population growth. Um, it's definitely, I think it's about 60% um, of our population is net overseas migration. Um, so in terms of housing demands, um, it will, I've got no doubt that in the short term it will weaken um, the, the total housing demand um, in Australia. Um, and uh, I suppose the, the other sectors that rely on, on the immigration, so the education sector and, and the tourism sector, um, 
will be affected pretty significantly as well. So it will be it will be very interesting to see what um, what housing what, what sort of aggregate housing demand impacts there are going to be. Yeah. And and Paul, we've been fortunate in Australia for a long time. We we've had relatively low unemployment rates, but other countries like say France has got a permanent un- unemployment rate of like 10, 11, 12 percent. Uh, they just mm. can't shake it for various reasons. My, what impact would 10 percent unemployed have if, if a lot of those jobs aren't, aren't you know rebooted? Mm. Well, I mean I, th- I think what people are observing um, I think what everyone is getting a look at, um, throughout the community at the moment is the the fragility of um, of economic impacts um, and when uh, when there's a positive economic impact it flows through the supply chain and, and throughout a local economy and a, a regional economy but when there's when you pull someone's wage out from underneath them um, you then see the negative version of that and you see the economic impact throughout a community um, that can be quite substantial so yeah, I mean, I think I think any increase in unemployment is going to cause those domino effects, um, and it could be quite challenging for an economy that's already been hit by bushfires in in parts of the country, um, and a government that's really spent every dollar they, they could possibly access now on on this recovery. Um, I think if if there's if there's longer term unemployment to deal with as well, which there which there very well might be, um, it, yeah, it could be. It could take quite a while to um, really emerge from. And uh, Paul, in terms of this is podcast extra now. Um, what have you been reading, listening to, or watching lately that you think our listeners might be interested in? Well, you you gave me this question in advance, so I'm not doing it off the cuff, but. Um, I actually don't, I must admit, I don't do a lot of reading or listening to um, sort of technical planning issues or things like that. I tune into planning exchange. No, no, no. It could be, it can be much broader. It's not just that. It <laughs> doesn't have to be planning related. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. In that case, I'm going to talk about sports documentaries. Um, I've, I've loved, I'm, I'm big into sports, but um, I, in this period of having no access to live sport, um, sports docos have been proliferating and uh so i've really enjoyed um sunderland till i die which is a, a doco about um sunderland football club and and the behind the scenes inner workings of a of a very interesting um business being a football club in a in a very passionate part of the world about football so that's one that i've loved and there's a bunch of other sports docos that i've really enjoyed as well lately so that's that's where i turn my attention when i'm sick of talking about planning and economics hmm. how about you jess well, we've had a bit of a baby boom within our sort of broader friendship group. So every now and then you may have heard me recommend um, some sewing or some quilting and um, I'm getting back into that again at the moment. So it's been good fun and nice and relaxing and also a very good thing to do um, during this unusual period. <laughs> what about you, Pete? Well, Jess, I, I'm so sick of uh, fake statistics and, and, and fake scare stories at the moment. I thought I might look up... <laughs> I'm just over it. But people, anyway, I can't believe it. It's like 1984, all sorts of bad things. It's dystopia we live in at the moment. I just cannot believe so many things. I mean, this has been like living through history these last few months. And a number of books that I read earlier on, you know, like 1984, lots of those things sort of come true. Um, I heard, Is 1984 a book? Oh, yes, please don't say that. <laughs> George Orwell. And... And, you know, in that, in that book, he had the Ministry of Truth. And I saw a government campaign slogan the other day. It was something like, staying apart keeps us together. And that could have come straight out of the pages of 1984, that, like from the Ministry of Truth. But I, anyway, what I've been looking up is the causes of death in Australia. And I think this would be a great podcast just down the track. Did you know something like 160,000 people died in Australia last year, Jess? No, I didn't. Right. And 16,500 of those were from lung-related illnesses. Paul, are you, are you still there? I'm, and, I'm listening intently. <laughs> and the major cause of death for males is heart attack, and the major cause for death for females is dementia. But 
it, these figures are put out by uh, the ABS, so I'm not going to bag them all the time. But the the change in the death rates it has been extraordinary over the years, and the reasons for those changes. So, Jess, you're into big into public health, so I think we should do a podcast on this topic. So, um, like every day, okay. so every week in a, Victoria, 700 people die. Amazing. Anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll try and find a guest for that one. <laughs> Anyone oh, listening who wants to talk about that, get in touch. <laughs> it sounds pretty dark. You could end up it in does sound dark very dark. <laughs> no, 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 Paul, it's not. It's not meant to be dark. It's meant to be illuminating because, and meant to be brightness because we are so scared of death. And you know, the insurance industry deals with death all the time and, and factors in. You know, what's the, what's the probability of this? What's the probability of that? Are you going to start talking about your um, the death calculator thing that you use as well? <laughs> <laughs> well. The death calculator, Paul, is that if you plug in, you know, you answer certain questions, the the insurance company will come back and say, you will live to the age of 74, Uh, 86. And some of the questions they ask you are like, have you had a speeding ticket in the last 12 months? So it's not just health related. It's also, it seems to pick up your attitudes to things. It sounds a lot like there's uh, some econometrics involved there. (laughs) You just plug in a bunch of variables and it'll give you an answer, but... uh, yeah, it's, uh, it sounds like a bit of a stretch, though. No, 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 it's not. Believe in the future. It's your friend, Paul. Paul, you've been fantastic. <laughs> Great guest, Jess. Good suggestion. Um, I think we should have Paul back down the track. And um, listeners, thanks for spending time with us in your busy lives. And uh, we would recommend the Urban Broadcast Collective, which we're part of. Um, great lot of podcasts there. So thanks so much, Jess. And, and thanks, Paul. You've been a super guest. Pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Great to be involved. Thanks for having me.